Uh, if you take out the handout sheet in your bulletin, you will see that I entitled today's lesson, A Functional Family. Uh, maybe you guys have heard of that. <laughs> maybe that is something, we keep them in museums, um, and they're through plexiglass, but don't touch them because you'll ruin them. So most of us are so familiar with dysfunction, the idea of a functional family is a little odd. But we're going to be talking today about bringing spiritual and physical families together through Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to begin with a quote by Philip Yancey at the top of your page. He said this. He said, at a deep level, I sense that church contains something I desperately need. Whenever I abandon church for a time, I find that I am the one who suffers. My faith fades and the crusty shell of lovelessness grows over me again. I grow colder rather than hotter. And so my journeys away from church have always circled back inside. I understand that church is not easy. I understand that community is not easy. I understand that marriage and parenthood is not easy. I get all this stuff. I mean, I live in these same worlds. It's not easy to open yourself up or engage with other people or make yourself available or to make that time to build relationships. I know that. However, I do not believe there is another way to live. I believe it's absolutely necessary. However, in this church, we have a, a, an unusual situation. Maybe it's more common today than ever before. But our church, as I've shared with you uh, a little while ago, we really don't have a lot of infighting. We don't have a lot, no problems about a schism. We don't have a problem about uh, division. We don't have a lot of problem where people are irritating one another. And I got to set everyone down and go stop being mean to so-and-so. We don't have barely any of that stuff at our church. Unfortunately, we don't have it for a very bad reason. We don't know each other. It's hard to irritate each other when you're all hanging out together. So largely, the peace that we have in our congregation is because we're so disconnected and so detached. And yeah, there are a lot of healthy relationships in here, but I'm talking about in general, the person sitting to the right or the left of you that's not in your family, you don't have a clue who they are. And if you don't have a clue who they are, you're going to be on your best behavior. When you first go to someone's house to visit, you don't automatically walk in and go, gosh, where'd you get those ugly drapes? Okay, you save that for the second visit, right? Okay, the point is, is you're on your best behavior. You want to say the right things. You want to make sure that you're getting to know them or being polite. And so we stand up and say, hi, how you doing? And whether we believe it or not, whatever. The idea is that we're largely disconnected. And as odd as this sounds and as much as the difficulty as it would create... For my staff and myself, I would much rather have a connected community with some dysfunction in it than a very functional disconnected community. And I believe that as we continue to do life together, we're going to get to know each other. Some of you I've known for 11 years, some of you 15 years, some of you a very short amount of time. I believe that as we engage with each other and we go through life and have those shared experiences and go through those difficult times, we will begin to bond together. We'll begin to know each other and care about each other. And so I'm going to talk today about how we get to that place. And when we're in that place, what do we do there? But I need us to understand that the way we are currently looking, the majority of us at least, the way we are looking at marriage, parenthood, church community is incorrect. I believe we need to re-rack our minds and refocus and redefine what those things are for. Now, if you enter into marriage for the whole idea that you want someone to meet all your needs, boy, are you mistaken. 
If you walk into a church and you say, I can't wait to go to this church because, gosh, they have all the ministries I want and they're going to minister to my kids and they're going to meet all my needs, you're going to absolutely walk away from this church very disappointed. If you have children for the whole idea that I can't wait to have a whole load of them so they can all do all the work around the house, man, you could not be further from the truth. See, the whole idea is that those types of community, those deep communities are not designed for bliss. They were not in design to meet everything that you want. However, they were designed to meet a very core, a very deep, a very powerful need that I believe God designed in you, and that is the craving for another human being to be in contact with. And those are ways that we get in contact with people. They're not the only ways. Not everyone has to be a parent. Not everyone has to be married. Those are not the only ways, but they are significant ways by which we connect with other human beings. And God designed it that we must have that in our lives or we die. That craving is to continuously force us back together so that something happens. What needs to occur in those level of communities is change. Look at the fill in the blank in front of you on your handout sheet. It is simply this. Regardless of the type, families are furnaces of transformation. The whole point of how parents have children, the whole point of how we become married and we fuse together to create one new entity, the whole point of how the body of Christ is just that, limbs connecting together to be the body of Jesus, all those things are designed for one specific reason, and that is to alter, change, and transform you into the image of God. Well, how does it feel when your spouse is your primary chisel? Doesn't feel very good. Doesn't, doesn't work out real hot when you're trying to go, I'm just tired from work. I just want to sit down on the couch and do my own thing. Okay, I get that. What's the other people going to say? Well, I'm trying to do my own thing and we're clashing against each other. That's real life. And you know what? God is using that agitation to cleanse. You know, it's funny because when you even think about uh, washing cycles in whether it's dishwashers or mostly in washing machines, there's this idea of agitation. We understand that there's a certain matter where we need to be tumbled around and agitated to grow, to change. Well, that's what these things are for. And that is what these things will be addressing here in Ephesians chapter 5. If you haven't already, please turn with me to page 829 or Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. And I will read the first two verses and we'll pray for the word this morning. Be imitators of God, therefore, Paul said to the church of Ephesus, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear and see that which you want us to alter in our lives. Lord, that we'd begin to redefine and re think the things that are in our lives that we wouldn't walk around in a state of disappointment, but we walk around in a state of readiness to change. I ask, Lord, that we begin to see the benefit and the blessing in what you have surrounded us with, as opposed to a constant frustration of what is not. Would you change us from the inside out? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul begins with the most dramatic most impossible challenge known to man. And it's interesting because it kind of comes in what? Four words? Be imitators of God. Oh, that's easy. 
Just mimic God. Just go be God. That's not hard. The word is mimetes in Greek for imitate. And it means it's where we get the root words for mimic, for uh, mime. It's the idea of copycatting. It's the idea of patterning after. It's the idea of trying to be just like or role modeling. Our lives down here is to model that of our father. We're supposed to want to be just like dad. Well, it's kind of neat because it says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. In other words, you have a safe environment to role model and grow in this family. Now, do you understand, and I've shared this a million times, so I apologize for being redundant, but you do realize that nobody grows in this life from childhood all the way up to our later years. No one grows other than by role modeling and pretending. We all understand that? That's just a fact of life. You go, what do you mean? Well, consider how my little girls grow up. They do little games of pretend. Animals talk to other animals. That's called a communication game, right? When you have little dolls, when you're dressing the dolls, when you're playing dress up yourself and you're putting on clothes that are too big for you, you're putting on jewelry that's absolutely inappropriate for you, when you're trying to mix and match and do all the things so you can look like mama, What are you trying to do? But you're trying to pretend, you're trying to grow, you're trying to learn what it would be like, and someday those clothes will fit. But you're growing up into them. Well, I went the other day um, to Burger King with my kids, and they were out of Indiana Jones toys. And so they gave my uh, younger daughter, my four-year-old, a toddler toy. Okay, well, she wasn't too pleased with the toddler toy. However, it was a cell phone. So those are your toddler toys now. Cell phones. Okay, what's the point? That the little ones grab the phone and they know what to do with them. That's what's so bizarre. They grab them, they put them in their ears, and they start talking to their imaginary friends. Because the idea is they're role modeling and pretending like the phone is real. And they're pretending on what mommy and daddy does with the phone. We've never stopped doing that. No matter how old you are, you're still pretending. You're still trying on clothes that are too big for you. You're still looking out at Jesus. And then you're kind of trying to learn what it's like. By saying, I think Jesus would do this. What if I did this? And then you try it on. We'll never grow in any other way other than that. And therefore, Paul says, that's what we got to continue to do. We got to continue to imitate. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Now, how are we going to do it practically? He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So what did Jesus do for us? He lived a life of sacrifice. What is our job to do for each other? Live lives of sacrifice. It's not rocket science. But sacrifice costs by definition. Therefore, you're going to constantly have this tension point of going, why is being around you people so hard for me? Because it's constant sacrifice. But that's shaping you internally. That's changing you. It's necessary. It's what we do as a spiritual act of worship. Look at the next phrase. As when Jesus did it, It was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Do you see that? Those are two different words. And they bring up two very vibrant images. Do you remember all the concepts we've talked about through the years about the temple, the Jewish temple, old school, Old Testament, and tabernacle, right? That's the movable one before they had a permanent one. And what happens when you go into worship in that uh, uh, Jewish environment? Well, what you would do is you walk in and there's a bunch of visuals. It was a very multi-sensory experience. 
You'd walk in and you'd hear worship or you'd hear this or you'd hear that. And then you'd go through and you'd look and your eyes are astounded and there's animals lined up for sacrifice. And you walk into the holy place and there's a showbread uh, table. Then there's the lampstand and it's lit up and it's engaging for your eyes. And then boom, you get hit in the sense of smell. Why? Because when you bring an animal for sacrifice, after they cut it, where would they lay it on? But the altar, what's the altar underneath the altar? But fire, what happens when you put meat on fire? It's called barbecue. So you got this constant scent of this barbecue scent all over the place. In addition to that, in the temple, they would have areas where they would light incense. There was a very specific pedestal concept where you would light the incense so there would be a sweet aroma mixed in with the barbecue scent. On the outside and these smells would swirl around and they would remind you that you were not at home, but you were in the house of God. In that same way, when Jesus did what he did and he walked through this land, as he would walk by, he would send up an incredible aroma to his father that God would breathe in deeply and say, it smells like Jesus it smells like victory. So when we do that, when we, as Romans 12, one says, give our bodies or as living sacrifices. That's our spiritual act of worship. It's this idea that not only do our prayers rise, but the very acts of sacrifice rise up before our God. That's what this means. He said, in light of the identity of who you are, in light of who we're trying to imitate, I need to explain to you that we can't keep imitating the other guy, the other side. We're done with that. That's not who we are anymore. Let us put on our new clothes, re-rack into our new family, and refocus on what God wants. Therefore, this next passage comes in. Now, this passage is one of those passages that will totally convince everyone that you are no longer saved and everyone's going to hell. Okay? This is one of those freaky passages. So let me go through it and I'll try to explain it a little bit to you. But first, let me make you nervous. Verse 3. But among you, meaning among believers, of which we majority are, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. That word in Greek is porneia, and that's when everyone goes, oh my gosh, I totally know that word. He's talking about porn. Uh, Paul was struggling with the internet. Okay, that's, that's not exactly correct. Porneia is a general category for all sexual sin. That was a, a common Greek word, kind of a catch-all phrase. He said, amongst you, amongst the family of God, there shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality. Uh, he, he adds more of that, nor should there be a hint of any kind of impurity. That is the idea of mixing foreign matter to ruin the purity of something. So you have something that's pure and then you introduce something else, another element, and now it's impure. That's the idea. Uh, nor should there be a hint of greed that's a selfish wanting because these are improper for god's holy people is let me ask you a question is there a hint of sexual immorality and greed and impurity in the church today yeah is there is there a hint of that in this church today yeah is there a hint of that stuff in my life today yeah so you understand why this is so convicting you understand why this is something that just smacks you across the face you're like whoa hold on a second I, I got this stuff going on. Well, that's why it's called a challenge. He moves on. He said, nor should there be, and he makes it even more difficult, nor should there be obscenity. That word is defined as lewd, disgusting, repulsive, however you want to define that. Now, 
when you're a guy like me who uh, has a tendency to be drawn towards that which is repulsive, apparently, and, and usually in humor, you're going to be completely out of line. That is usually an area where I'm always walking somewhere where I probably shouldn't walk is kind of the idea. These things all begin to sting my sensibilities. Because he said there should not be any obscenity, there shouldn't be foolish talk. Now this is where a lot of us get busted. The Greek word is morologia. You know what? That's where we get the word moron from. Okay? And there shouldn't be fool's talk. It means empty of value. Holy cow, I just got attacked by like a bird. What was that? Some bug just attacked my face right in the middle of my sermon. That was horrible. By the way, that was distracting, wasn't it? Satan came in the form of a bug. There he is again. Okay, that's getting old. All right, can we move on, please? Once again, speaking of morons, I just gave you a a life example. Here we go. Uh, Nor should there be foolish talk, meaning empty of value, nor should there be coarse joking or coarse jesting. That is a very difficult one to determine. A lot of different commentaries say it in different ways. The, the accepted idea is where someone takes a conversation that is uh, neutral or tame and they specifically bend it around to become destructive or obscene. It's the idea of altering a conversation for negative means. Those are out of place, the Bible says, but rather we should be focusing on, and he uses a Greek play on words, rather than this, we should focus on thanksgiving to God. For of this you can be sure, and this is where you get it nervous, No immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient, therefore don't be partners with them. Now that, holy cow, now we're all going to hell, right? It's kind of like, really, there shouldn't be a hint of any of these things, none of these people are going to heaven, oh my gosh, this stuff's in my life, what do I do? Now I'm not going to heaven, and we go into a panic. I want you to look at the last phrase once again. Verse 7, what does it say? Therefore, do not be partners with them. Meaning, that is what makes up their whole life. That is their identity. You are not of that sort. You are of this group, not that group. So that's a distinct group. So why are we acting like we're in that group? But the reason why he puts in such a strong, forceful phrase and says, don't let anyone deceive you, is because in Paul's day, there was a constant heretical thought called Gnosticism. It would be very similar to today's postmodern New Age philosophy. The idea that whatever you did in this body doesn't matter. God doesn't care about that stuff. So you can sin all you want. You can totally mess with people's heads. You can have as much sex as you want outside of marriage. Nothing's a big deal to God because he doesn't care about that stuff. He's just a life force that's interested in your thoughts. Okay, that's bogus. And Paul said, let no one mislead you on this stuff. No, 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 no. What mankind does is a huge deal. And yes, because of the disobedience is why there's an enormous ball of fire hurtling at the earth called wrath. Yes, that's why God's mad. He does take that stuff seriously. So Paul is being very, very strong right here. But I still think the application applies to us, which is that our good dad will discipline those he loves. And so, yeah, if we're walking around acting like the world, doing the stuff of the world, God's going to get us some re-racking. And he might have to take us to the woodshed on that one. Sometimes he's got to go, you know what, this is not acceptable. 
Because everything on that list, the problem with it is not that God's going, don't be funny, don't be funny, I hate funny. Okay, that's not God's point. God's point is the stuff on that list is destructive. It's harming someone else. No, it's not. It's just funny. No, it's not. Because you're creating a culture. You're creating a feeling. You're creating an ethos. You're creating habits and behaviors based on what you say and think. This stuff is destructive, so no, God's not going to sign off on it. He says, no, I don't like it. Stop hurting people. And if you don't stop hurting people, I've got to shut you down. That's his idea. He says, our identity is different, verse 8. For you were once darkness. Now, he didn't say you were once in darkness. He said you were part of the problem. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, let's live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 10 is a great passage. And as believers, what's our job? Find out what pleases the Lord. That's why we come to church and listen to the preaching part. It's kind of like this whole idea. Why well, don't I want to listen to this guy? He's going to yak, 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 yak for 45 minutes. I could just catch up some, on some sleep. Because my job is to go into Scripture and constantly dig out what pleases the Lord, present it to you and say, hey, you guys might want to do this stuff. This is what God likes. Isn't that why we're doing this? Isn't that why we're around here? We're trying to change from the inside out. We're trying to take on a new identity. We're trying to learn what our God loves. And we do that. Have nothing to do then with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. I find it fascinating that he uses the word fruitless. That means it doesn't produce anything. It doesn't net you anything. And isn't that true about deeds of darkness? For example, isn't it interesting that when Satan harms you or beats you down, let's say uh, he causes your company uh, in its corruption to blame you for something you didn't do. They pin it all on you. They fire you and you're completely lost to everything. You don't know how you're going to provide for your family. And as you're driving home, your first instinct is to go make it worse. Well, I'm, I'm totally depressed. I'm totally upset. God compl- uh, Satan completely thrashed me. So I think I'm going to go to a bar, get hammered and drive home. It's kind of like, what, what are you doing? Why, why, why would you make it worse? Why well, feel horrible? And we go into self-destruction mode. Isn't that weird? It's almost this idea where I've had a really bad day, someone totally insulted me, so now I'm going to eat for comfort and make it worse, and then I regret it the next day. We automatically go into these self-destructive modes, because not, and, and they don't net us anything. As a matter of fact, it's a loss. Because now, when you just drove home drunk, you just risk DUI, you just risk an accident, you just risk a fight with your wife, and now you've got a headache. And the whole point is, it didn't get you anywhere. But Satan's loving it, because he's like, look at that, watch that, I'll just tear you down. And when I tear you down, watch this. You'll tear you down. Watch here I go. Watch. I'll flick you in there. Pow! Oh, look. You're going to flick yourself. Pow! Wow, that was cool. Do you understand? I mean, it's this whole idea. Of why are we doing it? Why are we making it worse? Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything is exposed by the light. That becomes visible, for it's in the light that makes everything visible. Here's the idea. God is very much about this idea of light. It means bring it out to be looked at. That's the idea of confession. Bring it out of the darkness and show God what you did so we can look at that and go, okay, well, let's work with it. I died for that. Let's cleanse that out. Let's talk about confession. Let me show you. If you bring it out to me, I'm faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But as long as you keep it hidden in your heart and you've got your own little secret and everything's locked behind a door and nobody knows and that's your private pain, you're not bringing it out to be addressed at all. 
There's no cleansing. There's no life-giving light that can reach it. But it's all shielded and you keep hitting God's hand every time He gets near you. The idea is to bring it out of the light, out into the light from the darkness. This is why it is said, Paul writes, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's in quotations. That was a quote, and nobody knows where it comes from. Back in Paul's day, everybody knew this phrase, but we don't know where it comes from. Some people say it was an early Christian hymn. Other people say it was maybe modern poetry at the time. But we don't know where it comes from. But the idea is, wake up. Stop living like that. So he sums it all up in verse 15. He says, therefore, be very careful, meaning examine how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. In other words, don't just drift through life and gosh, I wonder what I'm going to do today. I don't know. I guess I'll end up in trouble. That's not how you live. You live with a plan and a purpose because God is actively doing stuff in the world. He's actively moving the kingdom of God forward. So you join him in his activity. You don't just wander around. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let me, let me explain that phrase, because that's been misused an awful lot. Here's the idea. You kind of go, is Paul trying to say there's Jesus on one side, it's light, bright, good, godliness, and on the other side is bad alcohol. This is devil, devil and alcohol. He's on the other side. Okay, that's not actually what the passage says. He's using a very fitting metaphor to explain to you something about the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. This is one of the very few churches where you can go to learn how to get drunk. Here we go. Let me explain. Here's, let's, let's talk about alcohol for a moment. Okay, how does one get drunk? Well, it has to begin where you what? You, you drink. Okay, we all good on that? This isn't rocket science. Are we all tracking with me? Okay, you drink the alcohol. You fill up your body with alcohol. And then it begins to alter your state. Are we clear on that? You begin to alter your state. You enter into this buzz kind of feel. And in order to maintain your buzz, you have to keep what? Drinking. If you stop drinking, the buzz goes away. If you overdrink, it ends up leading you to a more of an altered state. Are we clear on that? And so it's this idea that you are now, as you are drinking, under the influence of alcohol. Are we all tracking with the Holy Spirit tie in here? It's pretty easy. Okay, so how does it work with the Holy Spirit? Now, you have to understand, the Holy Spirit has already regenerated us, meaning brought us to life. The Holy Spirit indwelt us, sealed us, baptized us. There is only one thing that we're partnering with Him in now that He hasn't completely done, and that's the idea of filling on a consistent basis. Be filled with the Spirit is a Greek word, pleru. It means continually be filled with on a consistent basis. So, let's go through the scenario again. You engage with the Holy Spirit and he wants to have some say over your life. So you drink him in and you begin to alter your mindset and perspective on the things of God. If you stop engaging with the Holy Spirit or quench him or shut him off, you begin to lose that altered state and you go back to where you were at before. So you consistently give way and the more and more you drink in of what the Holy Spirit wants you to do and directs your life and guides you, you become under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's why it was a brilliant metaphor. It had nothing to do with trying to make some dramatic statement. He was trying to say about alcohol, he was trying to say, let me explain something about the Holy Spirit. 
He said, the problem with alcohol is you become useless to the kingdom of God. But when you're completely tied in through the Holy Spirit, you become useful for the kingdom of God. That's what he was trying to say. We pick it up in verse 18. He said, as far as you guys coming together as a church, let me explain how we should do these things. He said, I want you to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay, real quick, I'm not going to do that. Okay, and you're like, what's your problem? Well, because it's awkward for both of us. Because the way on first glance is what it sounds like. I dial the phone. Hey, John. I just called to say I love you. And he's like, what What are you doing? What is wrong with you? I'm like, what are you talking Paul said to do it. I don't know what's going on. I'm speaking to you in song. I don't know. Okay. I don't think that's what he's talking about. But you guys understand. The point is, look at the next phrase. Uh, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Okay, here's something that I was considering as I was preparing this lesson. What is the deal with tying music to joy? What is that about the human nature that does that? Think about it for a moment. When you're really, really happy about something, what do you do as you're going through the house? Start humming, singing, whistling. Why? Why is that your natural outpouring? God must break into song right now. Why? What is the deal about joy and singing? I don't get the tie-in, but something in our nature, something, whether, I mean, it even showed it in uh, nursery rhymes or fairy tales or little Cinderella movies, this idea of bursting out into song when something good happened. And it's this idea that in the human psyche, there's something about, I really need to express my joy and song seems to be a way for me to communicate what I feel. That's the idea. It was saying, listen, bring the joy that is in you and begin to share that out with the people around you. And in your heart, consistently live up that, lift up that joy to God. Does that make sense? To no one, apparently. Okay, great. <laughs> make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 21, if you underline in your Bible, please underline this verse right here. Because if you do not understand this verse, you will not understand the following. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, who's he talking to? All believers. What's our job to do here in this church? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why are you submitting to me and why am I submitting to you? Very little of it has to do with you. It has everything to do with who our boss is, who our dad is. So we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why are we submitting to one another? What does submit mean? It's hupotasso in Greek. It means to place oneself under someone else's authority or leadership. Why would you possibly do that in a church? You guys are doing it right now. Why do you do this? What is your purpose in submitting yourself under my authority to allow me to teach you for this period of time? Well, because it follows so that we can function properly, right? It doesn't mean that I have any more worth than you. It means that you are willingly right now placing yourself underneath my teaching so that we can function as a church learning about the Word of God, right? So it's a function thing. Are we all clear on that? All right. Not only that, but submitting is a natural outpouring of Christianity. It's the way Christianity is done. It's how the Trinity works. Okay. Now, if you do not get this concept, you're really going to get lost and offended by what I'm about to say next. So I need you to camp on this for a moment. Trinity is made up of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, you've seen the movie. 
Okay. Apparently no one knows this. What is wrong with you people? All right. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the Trinity. Now, when Jesus came here as the Son of God, what did he consistently say? I only do that which the Father tells me to do. That's called submitting. So he lines up underneath the Father. Let me ask you this, and you better solve this in your mind. Is the Son of God less than the Father? Is the Son of God less in being God than the Father? No. Is the Son of God weak? No. Then why in the world would he submit himself underneath the Father for function and role? In other words, we're getting something done. Let's lock in. Do what we're going to do. Son, you fire in. I'm doing Father. We're locking in. Holy Spirit. We're all submitting to one another in perfect unity. Boom. And they get their job done. The point is function. Right? Are we all clear on that? Therefore, look at the next phrase. This is where everyone has a heart attack. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Oh my gosh, the world's falling apart. Wives, submit to your husbands. How dare you say submit to my husband? He's a moron. Okay. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Do you understand that hupotasso is a willing submitting underneath someone else for the purpose of a function? Are you all following this? Ladies, why in the world are you shocked that you have to submit to your husbands? Isn't that what all Christians do all the time? Why is it unusual? Well, you don't know. You're not a woman. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, I get that. And you got all this stuff about, well, my husband, he's this, he's that. Okay, real quick, here's my trump card back to you. You picked him. It's your own dang fault. What are you doing? You're sitting there throwing it back and going, he's a terrible leader, terrible leader, terrible. Okay, why did you select him then? We don't live in an arranged marriage society. You grabbed him. You got to pick who was the leader of your house. Why in the world are we having this discussion? Here's the point. The family's going to function in a given way. And if we're going to move forward, then we all lock into our jobs and role and function so that we're effective in moving forward. So, yes, why does a woman submit? Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so the wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Yeah. Why? Because functionally, that's how the family works. Now, we could sit here and spend a whole other hour on talking about why the woman got called to be the one to submit in the family structure and why the man's the head of the house, but we don't have that kind of time. You understand, part of that's the curse, part of it's in a design thing, part of it's in a bunch of different areas, but the point is, the man is the head of the house because he's the one that's going to get busted for everything that goes wrong. He is the what is, the outranking officer. So anything that goes wrong in the field, it becomes his fault. Right? So ladies, here's the thing. When I finish teaching this passage, all the men are going to leave weeping. I don't know what you're worried about. I will switch with you in a heartbeat. Because do you know what's coming next? Do you know what's on the guy's list? Have you watched that one? Okay, look at this. Let's take a look at it. Verse 25. Husbands. Love your wives. You remember what agape is? Agape is unconquerable desire for goodwill for the other person. Meaning no matter what your wife does, she can't shut down the factor that you're going to want the best for her at all times. She can't crush that. She can't fight that. She can't ruin that. You will always want her best interest at all times because it does not depend on her at all. It depends on you as a man of God. 
loving on her and taking care of her. And no one can shut that down. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know what that means? You die. That's a pretty strong challenge. That means, how did Jesus love the church? He died a horrible, brutal, painful death. I remember hearing Tony Evans talk one time when he came into town. He said, I got all these guys coming to me going, man, Dr. Evans, my wife's nagging me half to death. And he goes, well, I guess you're only halfway there. <laughs> Once again, what's the point? The point is, what did Jesus do? Well, how does the economy of Jesus work? Higher the title, more the servanthood, yeah? Therefore, the job is you become the greatest servant of the household because you're the head of the house. God gave you that role. Gentlemen, your job is to equip and resource and make your children and your wife thrive. That's what you do. And you do it because Jesus commanded you to do it. And you don't let anybody shut that down. That is your job. It says what? Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with a washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You guys read 1 Corinthians chapter 11? It says that the glory of Christ is man and the glory of man is what? Woman. What does that mean? Well, what's glory? Glory is what makes you look good. So in other words, gentlemen, if your wife does not look healthy and thriving because of your poor leadership, guess who it reflects poorly on? You. Your, your glory is all screwed up because you don't know how to be a man of God. That's unacceptable. Don't sit there and turn around and blame your wife. Begin to resource her. Begin to find out ways that you can lift her up, ways that you can love on her, ways that you can cherish her. Because why? She's your glory, gentlemen. And you want her to look good. Is she alive in Jesus? Is she outfitted with what she needs? That's the job. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. That word is cherishes it. Is that what you're doing? You cherishing your wife? Because you're cherishing yourself, I'll tell you that. You give your body what it needs. Therefore, you give your wife what she needs. Just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, he quotes from Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now that's saying two different things. Number one, it's talking about the idea of re-racking the family structure. You see, in the ancient world, when Moses was writing this stuff down in Genesis, the current worldview was that your family was your most important relationship. Your wife was just something you acquired along the way. Well, I got a car, got a wife, got a dog. So if anything went down bad at home, if your mom needed you, you ditch out on your property to go take care of your real responsibility, your family. You don't spend all your time with a lady at home. She's like a couch. All of a sudden, Moses throws down and says, I don't think so. This is what God told me. For this reason, a man will abandon his father and mother. That's the word. Sever. Boom. Break off. Your most primary relationship is now your spouse, not your family back home. 
you now fuse together as one new entity. Paul says in the next phrase, what? This is a profound mystery. How they fuse together and create that new identity, I don't know. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Real quick, practical teaching. We got one of two cycles that we can run in our household. You can run a vicious cycle or you can run a healthy cycle. These are your choices. Because here's how it works. Sociologists believe that the number one need within man, men, is significance. Guys, ladies, we got a hero problem. We got a hero complex. We will drift towards where we are a hero. We want to be significant. We want to know that we matter. We want to leave a mark on this world. We want to have some value. And so if we do not feel it at home, guess where we're going to go? Somewhere where we do. Why do you think men become uh, uh, workaholics? Because at work, they're called a hero. Oh, you're an amazing worker. Nobody ever does it like you. Nobody can handle it like you. And so we go, yeah, yeah, I like all those strokes. I'm going to keep drifting there. Ladies, the number one need, according to sociologists, for you is security. Where you feel prioritized, cherished, protected, loved on, cared for. So why do women go astray? Someone else shows them that attention and that affection. See, we can have a couple different ways that it goes. Normally, the cycle would go like this. That guy doesn't love me. He doesn't cherish me. I have zero respect for that guy. And you know what? I'm going to spend the rest of my life explaining how much respect I don't have for him. You know what you just did? You just kneecapped your husband. You just tore him apart. He can't stand up on his own. So now, all of a sudden, he resents you. He resents your very presence. He hates you being in the house. But he doesn't love you. And that vicious cycle spins because the more he doesn't love you, the more you don't respect him. The more you don't respect him, the more he doesn't love you. And it just continues on. At some point, somebody's got to break the cycle. The cycle's got to spin the other way. That, And I will tell you this, that if your wife says, oh my gosh, you're amazing in these areas... She's not just making it up, not just being ridiculous, but she's honestly looking for areas where she can say that you are excellent. You begin to go, wow, that's an intelligent woman. I love that one. I love her. She's amazing. I can't wait to shower her gifts upon her, right? Okay. And the idea is that you begin to love her, and the more you love her and cherish her and meet her needs, she loves you all the more. She respects you all the more. And it begins to spin the proper way. Those are the practical things Paul just revealed. However, I give you one last thought as you leave here. Many people believe that this passage is limiting or that in some way it's demeaning or in some way it's inhibiting. We don't know what we're talking about. Here's the day of Paul. There were three major powers that were at work in Paul's life and around him. And that were the Greeks, the Jews, and the Romans. Here's how the family structure worked in Paul's day. Although the Jews had talked a good talk, bottom line, by Paul's day, the family structure was completely destroyed. Divorce was happening constantly, but women had no rights. They were still property. Women, you had no access to a divorce in common life. You had to go through some extreme circumstances to ever get a divorce. So you could never ask for a divorce. You were always stuck. Some guy would come out, select you, and you were stuck for the rest of your life. And they could treat you like garbage. But men could divorce at the drop of a hat. Pull out a piece of paper, say to you one phrase, you are released, you are free, bye-bye now, and walk away. That's how fast a man could drop a woman. And they had no rights, no ability outside the home to exist. 
Sure enough, what about the Greeks? Demosthenes, the Greek writer, said, Gentlemen of Greece, let me explain to you how it works. Ladies, listen up. We have courtesans for pleasure. In other words, we have prostitutes when we want to have sex, period. We have concubines when we want to do something. If we want to have someone go to the movies with us, if we want to have someone hang out with us, if we want to go golfing, we're going to go find a girl and we will make sure that she is our partner. And then we have wives for our household management. You give us legitimate kids, we have a legal transaction, you manage our house properly, that's how it works. Thank you very much. The whole family structure was destroyed. There was no point in even bothering to have a divorce law because you just gathered and acquired whatever you needed. The Romans started out valuing marriage very much, but by the time of Paul's day, they were writing such as a woman wrote, I have now picked up my 23rd husband, and I am his 21st. Divorce was so rampant, and the family structure was so destroyed that there was nothing there. In that environment, Paul wrote this. Paul gave you a teaching on what a healthy family life was like, and it was revolution. As we close, I just need you to know this. I know these things aren't easy. I know these things aren't everything you want. But they are what you need. And you can either do things to make them worse or do things to make them better. And I would suggest to you that living a life of sacrifice will always make it better. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the challenge, the reminders, the understanding that you allow us to see. Thank you for opening our eyes. And may our marriages be protected from the enemy. May you shield us and guide us. Those, Father, that have a desire to get married but are not yet already, would you prepare our hearts that we might be the men and women that you designed us to be and that we would be prepared for that which you have called us to. Father, for parents, would you allow us to love on our children in a healthy fashion and make them thrive. Lord, thank you. And please build us into a church community where we're engaged and in love with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.